Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, a PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And joining me in conversation today is my colleague and friend, Michael Nishimura. Hi, great to be here. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing one of our own, Professor of Asian American Studies at UCSB, Dr. Diane Fugino. We have the pleasure of discussing Fugino's Nisei Radicals the feminist poetics and transformative ministry of Mitsuya Yamada and Michael Yasutake, which was published by the University of Washington Press in 2020. The book traces the activism of two siblings who charted their own paths for what it meant to be Nisei. Reverend Mike was an Episcopal minister whose politics changed with the historical context and circumstances surrounding his life, whereas Mitsu is one of the most widely known Nisei feminists and writers and was among the first writers to discuss the experience of Japanese incarceration. Through detailing their half-century of dedication to global movements, including multicultural feminism, Puerto Rican independence, Japanese-American redress, and indigenous sovereignty, Yamada and Yasutake's lives complicate the dominant narrative that depicts Japanese-Americans moving toward conservatism in the later part of the 20th century. Their lives present, in the words of Fujino, quote, a song of hope that transforms the ruptures and displacement of incarceration and atomic bombs, that moves from invisibility to insurgent mobilizations, and that rejects the projected polite politics of the Nisei to build, in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a world-transcending citizenship that demands in-slash-sight for the blind, food for all those who hunger, and liberation for the captive, for all of us bound by colonial, racial, and patriarchal structures. Nisei Radicals joins Dr. Fujino's long history of writing political biographies that includes Heartbeat of Struggle, The Revolutionary Life of Yuriko Chiyama, and Samurai Among Panthers, Richard Aoki on Race, Resistance, and a Paradoxical Life, both published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2005 and 2012, respectively. Broadly, her research examines Japanese and Asian American activist history within an Asian-American radical tradition and shaped by Black power and third-world decolonization. Fujino herself is a key figure of Asian-American activism. She's a core organizer of the Ethnic Studies Now Santa Barbara Coalition, which won Ethnic Studies as a high school graduation requirement in 2018. Fujino is involved with the UCSB Multicultural Center, the Intersectional Justice Facilitator Program, the Food Security and Basic Needs Task Force, the Fund for Santa Barbara, and Casa de la Raza. She is also a founding member of Cooperation Santa Barbara. We began this conversation with a reading of Bryn Saito's poem, Lines for a Future Daughter, which features lines from Mitsuya Yamada's 1988 poem titled Desert Run. Donna will be reading the portions provided by Saito, whereas Michael will be reading lines from Yamada. Lines for a Future Daughter. A certain quiet tonight, a certain sanctuary, I cultivate a nostalgia for the present. Moonrise over mesquite, and me in the outer dark, away from the orbits, dreaming of your face. My desert never ages. If you must fit me to your needs, I will die. And so will you. So I dream of a life beyond mind with dark matter desire. I study the creosote's tears. There are worlds inside of this world, laboring into birth. There are 
garden caves beneath the earth's soil where the dead dance, and the roots lock arms, drinking water. Their roots spread, wide on the surface, expecting drops of my blood. In New York and young, I worried about sunlight. I stood in the broken theater beside my sisters, stage bashed and bleeding with red signs of hate. I am back to claim my body. I was too young to hear silence before. I worried about sunlight. Now I stroke a small lump in the mysterious slope between thigh and lower belly and terror sings through me like a corrugated flame. I return to the desert. Everything is done in silence here. In the world I imagine for you, women of the deep rise from the red rocks, hauling from the bogs of our prehistory. The canyon is a place with eyes. The desert is the lungs of the world. As a ghost, I grow stronger and lighter at the same time. I am transfused by the creosote shrubs. I talk stories to your daughter's daughters from the desert ruins. Hi, Diane. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that we started with this really stunning poem by Bryn Sato. And I want to say that I came to hear it first when we were doing the uh, a book party for Nisei Radicals at the Japanese American National Museum. And there was a whole um, grouping of, of poets and writers, mostly Japanese American women who were reading, and Brent Saito was one of them. And she read this poem that was just so beautiful and so evocative of Mitsue Yamada's second book of poetry, Desert Run. And I love that one because the 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 um, poem named after the book Desert Run talks about Mitsu Yamada's reflections of her time in Minidoka, how she didn't see the desert. She just saw it as empty space with nothing in it. But as she grew older and came to understand nature more, she really came to see the desert differently and the life that's in there and the things that she could learn. And Bren Saito got this from Mitsu and wrote this beautiful poem. So thank you so much for starting with it. Of course. And I think exactly what you said, it helps set this conversation up well. So with that, I would like to jump into our first uh, question for this conversation. So to help situate our learners to the text and to your previous political biographies, would you share how you came to this project and what inspired you to write a biography of two siblings, Mitsue Yamada and Michael Yasutake? Yeah, I think I came to this through three interrelated pathways. And one of it was as I researched and wrote and also did activism alongside Yuri Kochiyama, Nisei's like Yuri, right, I really became interested in the political ideology and practices of Japanese Americans of her generation, right? And this is the same generation of my parents and what people know of the Nisei or the second generation Japanese Americans, the children of immigrants, right? Born mostly in the 1910s and 1940s, like the subjects of this book. Um, they were always deemed, right? Bill Hosokawa, right? The journalist writes about them and dubs them the quiet Americans. So he's both producing and reinforcing the dom what became the dominant narrative of the Nisei in the post-war period, right? Political passivity and assimilationism. And that really came to dominate and create all kinds of problems with the model minority, which of course Asian American studies critiques, right? But I had access to people like Yuri who had shown otherwise. So I was really curious about the different forms of Nisei activism that would challenge this kind of quiet American trope, right? And then another pathway in was that I was really fascinated, I've been, by the social movements of the 60s. 
the Asian American movement, the Black Power movement, and, and other movements of that period. And so I was focused more on the Sansei, right, the children of folk like Mitsu and Mike, and um, that that period of activism. But as I studied it, I also learned that there were Nisei who were active in the 60s and 70s. And so that was another way into understanding and this disrupting this trope of the Nisei, and also to think about the unexpected historiographies or the unexpected categories of times and places and people that shift how we think about different groups, their racialization, the narratives, and so forth. And then finally, the, the third pathway for me re really was social movements, activism on the ground. It connected me to Mitsu Yamada and Mike Yasutake, and especially through political prisoner work. And it was through this work that I got to know um, both of them and their families and became really fascinated by their histories. The more I heard about them, their committed activism really inspired me, but also the, just such interesting, funny people who were self-reflective and self-critical and told, um, like Mitsu in particular, right, as a storyteller, as a poet, told amazing stories. And then Mike Yasutake also had a kind of writing practice in terms of sermons, right, as, as an Episcopal minister. And so it just, it was just fantastic for me to, to come into this through them. Yeah, that's so wonderful to hear. And I did want to plug for listeners, if you haven't read it already, um, Diane's amazing book about Yoriko Chiyama, Heartbeat of Struggle, The Revolutionary Life of Yoriko Chiyama. I'm sure you've heard of it, but I just wanted to make sure that was um, plugged. And I think um, what's so fascinating, I think, about this book is that, as you said, Diane, the sort of, you know, talk, we've talked about, you know, a lot of literature has talked about the Sansei as as radicals and the Issei as radicals, but there's really not, not a lot of discussion about these, you know, Nisei um, activists. So I, I think that's like so, uh, so important um, and, and, and really great um, to sort of see that in print. So I wanted to ask a little bit about um, methodology. I was curious, um, since in the introduction, you cite Sandra Harding's formulation of objectivity, Zhao Costa Vargas's observant participation, and most centrally, Donna Haraway's concept of situated knowledge in order to provide different ways of seeing and understanding subjectivity. Um, as a biographer of many important figures in Asian American activism, and particularly with this book, as someone who intimately knew Mitsuya and Reverend Mike, can you elaborate on your methodological approach in this book? Yeah, thank you, Michael, for that question. And I don't think I said yet that I'm delighted to be in this podcast with the two of you, Donna and Michael. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I really situate myself in this lineage of feminist scholars, you know, who while supporting rigorous analysis and methods in research, also critique conventional research methods, right? And it's been a longstanding debate. It's one that's gained a lot of traction, in, you know, in, in, I don't know, when the last many, many years. It's not a new thing to recognize this in certain fields like feminist studies and ethnic studies and, and actually many social sciences and humanities as well. And in, in this, right, we recognize that scholars do not produce knowledge in as, as beings detached from the world, right? As if we aren't participants living in society. And so instead, feminist scholars like Donna Har Har Haraway write, write about knowledge as always being partial, always being locatable, right? It's situated in particular places and particular times and particular people. It's critical 
right? This is the kind of knowledge that she's calling situated knowledge, right? It's not free-floating abstractions detached from particular embodied experiences, histories, structures of oppression, geographies. Um, and, you know, this isn't to say that, right? Like people just, it's free-floating. People just do whatever they want. It is not that. There is a methodology. It is an interpretive history, right? Um but it but it it doesn't look at things through conventional lens, right? And Sandra Harding, right, another feminist scholar, right, likewise supports this idea of and, and critiques the idea of objectivity in research, right? And she says that in quotes, the problem with the conventional conception of objectivity in research is that is not that it is too rigorous or too objectifying, as some have argued, but rather that objectivity is not rigorous or not objectifying enough. And what she means by this is that the ways in which complexities of sexism and racism and other forms of power shape the research process needs to be interrogated and brought into the research method. Um, and so she really promotes different ways of knowing, right? And she also says, women's lives right, can provide the starting point for asking new critical questions about not only those women's lives, but about men's lives and a whole social order. And this is kind of, I think, what Mitsuo Yamada does with her writing, right, and what I'm trying to do with this book, right, is to ask questions, right, being situated in the activism and in 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 kind of personal relationships with the two of them. I knew them for a long time. This book took 20 years to produce. I did a lot, yeah, I did a lot of the interviews uh, much earlier. And sometimes uh, when you when you're doing things, you, you just have opportunities and things come up, right. And I'm so glad I did it because about uh, just over a year after I went out to Chicago and spent a week with Mike Yasutake and interviewed him and his um, colleagues and his family and looked through archival documents and so forth, you know, he he had he had passed unexpectedly. So it's sometimes you just have to do things when the moment's ripe, but then life gets in the way, right? And and it, I wasn't able to turn back to this and and write it. Um, but, but I'm glad that I did those interviews at the time that I did. Um, and I want to say that in terms of this methodology, right, there is convention. I use conventional methods, right? I interview both of the subjects. I interview others. I rely on archival materials. I rely on their writings. I rely on FBI and INS and other kinds of documents. But in addition, I, I well, and I, then I did part, what would might be called participant observation, right? I went with them to events and um, meetings and so forth. But I also did what what I'm drawing from, right? Jao Costa Vargas's idea of observant participant, right? We're not just participating and observing and taking detailed field notes for research, but we're also participating in the co-activism with them, and. Some people would say this makes you too too subjective, and and it can it it can do that. And I I think people will have to judge for themselves whether this happens. But it also has the potential to have the advantage of allowing for knowing people over a much longer period of time in informal ways in which people are much more candid and much more revealing than say just doing a two hour interview where you mostly get stump information, right? Um, so, so I think people can see for themselves whether this seems like 
the, the kinds of approaches that, that they want to take or not. But we have to be careful with it as well. Thank you so much for explaining that, Diane. And also to think about the role of like feminist scholarship and feminist methodologies as not only it impacts your work, but then also in how it relates to Mitsue's uh, development as a writer, as you demonstrate throughout the book. And, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed about Nisei Radicals is that in addition to telling us a story about their lives as they existed um, as siblings, like young siblings, and then as they come together towards the end, you also dedicate chapters to each of them um, so that we can really sit with their work and sit with their development as activists um, throughout their lives. And so I would hope um, to talk a little bit more about Mitsuye's uh, development as an activist and as a feminist writer, which are the topics of chapter three and chapter five. And we see in these two chapters how what you say, the trope of silence formed a related core theme in Mitsuye's writings. Would you be able to share how Mitsuye understood and employed silence as well as the related theme of invisibility throughout her writings? And does she develop her ideas around these themes as her life goes on? Yeah, thank you for that question, Donna. Yeah, um, you know, scholars like Trace Yamamoto and others have written about this theme of silence, right? And especially as they analyze Mitsue Yamada's writing. And it's one of the themes that comes out so strongly in what she writes. And I actually came to her, I think the very first um, writing of hers that I ever read was Invisibility is an Unnatural Disaster. And this is an essay that she is part of that groundbreaking anthology, right? This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by and About Radical Women of Color by Sheri Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. And it was, re it was published in the early 80s. And for decades, I would say to this day, continues to really be pivotal for people as they come into their, what Jayla Sandoval would call U.S. third world feminism or women of color feminism. And it was that, that book was that for me. And I was at a point where I was also gravitating towards Asian American feminism and Asian American activists, right? Not in a narrow identity politics way, because I also see myself connected to ideas of third world internationalism, but also there was a special meaning there, right? And Japanese American activists, obviously you can see the kinds of work that I do. It's like it, it has special meaning, right? And to meet people like Mike and Mitsu and Yuri and others was really important to me personally. And um, so I read invisibility is an unnatural disaster, right? And this is a piece that Mitsu wrote. Um, she talks about the stereotypes of Asian American women and how we are expected to not be angry, to accommodate others, to make others feel good. And so at a faculty meeting, she got upset and she was surprised that people got upset about her anger. And she noticed that for others, like, uh, you know, other groups, people may not have reacted in the same way, but they did for her. And it also made her realize that when she was being silent, her meaning was, I disagree with you, right? Because in Japanese American culture, silence does not imply agreement, but it was read as agreement or subservience or vacuousness, right? And so Mitsu writes, in quotes, I had supposed that I was practicing passive resistance while being stereotyped, but it was so passive, no one noticed I was resisting. 
It was so much my expected role that ultimately it rendered me invisible. And it's a funny thing and it's a kind of sad thing that how many years later are we, 40 years later? And Mitsu noted how, wow, she's surprised that this still resonates with people. Like we hope it wouldn't, right? But sadly it does. Um, and so, you know, for Mitsu in, in her writings, right? She also, she, I think she talks about silence and reflects on it in really complicated ways. She brings in gender as well, right? And one of the things she talked about was during World War II, after she and she followed her brother, Mike Yasutake, to Cincinnati, where he was studying at the college. And at one point, there, there's a whole story of where Mike was a conscientious objector of sorts, not formally, but, but that was his position on the draft. And when government officials came to interview him, and he wouldn't support the draft, well, this is the story of Mike and Mitsu, then he got uh, kicked out of the university. And Mitsu was upset because she had a similar position. And Mike, in fact, was a U.S. citizen and she was not. But they targeted him and she didn't, she was not dangerous. She was rendered harmless, right? And so she interpreted this through gender lens and um, names many experiences like this that happened where um, Japanese American or, or Asian American women are rendered harmless. And this is one of the tropes that she talks about as really problematic, uh, the ways in which people, you're, you're so, you're, you're seen as so inconsequential that you can speak your mind, you can do anything you want, and people just continue to see you as not, not a threat, not, not dangerous, you know, not someone to be feared. Yeah, and I appreciate that you actually named one of the chapter, chapter five is named after the the poem that you um, sort of cited, Diane. And I think in terms of um, Camp Notes came out in 1976, is, is that correct? And I think that's why I think the why that's so monumental is that sort of precedes the you know 1980s in which a lot of Japanese Americans actually came out in on mass to testify and, and give testimony about what happened in camp and so actually you know Mitsu's among the writers and especially from a you know from a woman's woman's perspective of of what happened in camp and um I, I was so I was really glad to see that you you highlighted that aspect as well and and thinking about the you know that she cites um that Mitsu cites Audrey Lord's quote my silence had not protected me. And I'm thinking about the sort of corollary between her and Mike. And so, and, and, and a larger theme about the book that that I, I saw, which was um, sort of around inaction and complicity with injustice. And, you know, thinking about how Mike sort of discusses, you know, the complicated relationship that he had with the sort of white moderates that MLK, you know, warned us all about. Um, and, you know, thinking about how silence and speaking out have long been this this point of tension in intergenerational Japanese American experience. So, and we and, and maybe let me um just um, discussing in between both Mitsu and Mike's writings and experiences. How do they help us grapple with you know complicity with violence in both personal and political ways? Yes, absolutely. This is the work that both of them do, and especially is another really strong theme in Mitsue's writings, right? And so if I can, I, I want to actually read a short poem of hers. And this is maybe the first poem of hers I read. It's one that's been very impactful. And um, it's called Warning. And it's interesting, it's in this book called Full Circle, New and Selected Poems. It's Mitsu's third book of poetry, and I'm so proud to say that the Department of Asian American Studies published it in 2019. Um, 
And this poem Mitsu wrote a long time ago, but it hadn't been, I don't think it was published. So it's now in this book. And she says, warning, my father's voice came to me from a corner of his cell, marked dangerous enemy alien. Do not sign your legal name to anything, not on petitions for any cause, in the street, at meetings or rallies, not on receipt of orders, special deliveries or CODs. I was my father's daughter. I had followed his advice, advice assiduously, never left my thumbprint anywhere, never gave my stamp of approval to anything, never cast my soul print in cement, never raised my voice on billboards, and one day disappeared anyways behind barbed wire. They put up a sign on buildings, telephone poles, and storefronts for all persons who never left a mark. My silence had not protected me. And so I think that, you know, this poem speaks so loudly to those who are complicit with injustice, right, who think that doing nothing will keep them safe, right, which is how, as, as you mentioned, Michael, right, she, she, or maybe Donna earlier, she ends with Audrey Lord, another, right, the, the, the invisibility uh, essay with Audrey Lord and someone, right, Your, my silence will not protect me. And I think that this is a major lesson for things that are going on in the world today and have been going on in the world, right? And what is it that, that we're going to say and we're going to do, right? What are we going to tell our children and our grandchildren? Um, and this was something that was always important to Mike and Mitsu. And I just want to say that Mitsu writes other poems. There's one to the lady who said, why didn't you guys do something during World War II, right? And she really speaks back very strongly to that woman. Why didn't you? What are you doing now, right? And that, that was during more the Vietnam War era when she was writing that poem. And um, But this can slide into self-righteousness, right? But it doesn't. It really doesn't. I think Mitsu is somehow so effective with that. And I think part of the tools that she uses is she's always so self-critical, and self-reflective, and she's not trying to put herself as up as any model, and she shares so candidly in ways that are quite unusual for, I really don't know very many other Nisei who are candid in this way, to share personal family things, right? And not in bitter ways, not in bashing ways, but in really self-reflective ways that I think help all of us to improve as people and to come to realize different things that we need to about, say, conflicted relations that we have. Um, and I want to make a point about, you know, what you raise about Dr. King's idea of, right, the white moderate, right? And, and at one point, um, Michael Yasutake says to me, right, wow, I was looking at the congregants, you know, who I'm preaching to every Sunday. And these are the same people who would have picked up the rocks and thrown them at Dr. King, right, in 1966 when he came to Chicago to help bring the civil rights movement to the North. And it just always struck me, like, how hard this was for Reverend Mike to be working for racial justice, right, in these communities, some of whom he found allies, but others he didn't. And it was it was difficult. And what um, Dr. King is talking about, right, also is in his very famous um, letter from Birmingham jail, right, um, where eight white moderates come and really critique him for trying to make the civil rights movement go too quickly. And he writes back to them. 
and he calls the white moderate a particularly dangerous obstacle to dismantling white supremacy. And this is what Dr. King says, right? For those who've read it, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro term of the day, the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. And then he gives his famous statement about negative peace as the absence of justice. And instead, we need to invoke positive peace as the presence of justice. And I think that this type of message is one that Reverend Mike and Mitsu really lived by and invoked um, constantly in, in, in the work that they did. Um, I think if if there's time, I want to I want to make two two points. One is um, in the fifties, Mitsu was working in living in uh, Sierra Madre in Southern California, and she was working to oppose Prop fourteen, which was um, she was working for ha fair housing, right? And this was an anti fair housing measure, and many of her congregants actually supported this because, and they said it. They didn't want black folk moving into the neighborhood, right? This is the 1950s at that moment. And she realized that, wow, they were so kind to her, right, interpersonally, because she was seen as a token and she was accepted as long as she didn't make them uncomfortable or do things like she was doing, right, fighting for black equality. And so she learned a lesson that Asian American acceptability is dependent on black exclusion. And that was something that she fought against throughout her life, right? And and the last thing that I wanted to note it about note about this idea of complicity with violence, right? So Mitsu has this other poem that she writes called The Club. And it's also one that really sits with me and, and lingers for me. And she talks about this complex complicity that people have with violence against women and violence against women of color. And in this poem, she writes about a man beating a woman with this doll. Um, it's a porcelain uh, Japanese doll. And she the poem goes through the relationship with red marks and bumps. And in the end, the narrator woman escapes, right? And when she escapes, she ends up taking this doll with her. And it was such an unexpected moment, an unexpected thing that, that she would do, right? And it was a moment of solidarity with the doll that had been her the, an instrument of her abuse, right? And... Um, I felt like it was this way in which Mitsu writes and, and really makes complex the ways in which people are victims and com complicit co-conspirators with, with abuse, right? And that we are all mixed in and connected with all of this. And she does all of this in her really beautiful, understated aesthetic. So I just want to say that I feel like the ideas that you're asking about complicity complicity are just marked and in, 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 in they come out in more and more nuanced ways in the ways that both of them work and write. Yeah. And I'm thinking, Diane, um, about your last statement there. And thank you so much for that reminder about the complexities of complicity um, and particularly the ways, the different ways that people choose to demonstrate support or to illustrate their resistance um, and I know that, you know, of course, in Nisei Radicals, we're getting two very different views, right? We're getting Mitsu's very, like you said, understated, but incredibly clear and targeted um, 
beliefs in the poetry, in the writings, in the essays, in the teaching. And then on the other hand, um, you know, Mike's work is a little bit more direct, what we would consider to be the kind of tradition, or at least what I would consider to be maybe the more like traditional style of activism that we might be familiar with. And so I would like to maybe think about uh, the trajectories of injustice that you illustrate kind of illustrated at the beginning of your response to that last question, and particularly the theme around movement and removal that I think comes up at various points in time in both of their lives. Um, and you mentioned that Mitsu and Mike, quote, waged their activism on different geographies of scale, the local, national, and international, as interconnected work that also crossed racial, national, and other borders of difference. And so I would like um, you to maybe comment on how their activism and their work are inspired by and transformed through their transnational experiences. And I know you mentioned earlier that Mike is a U.S.-born citizen, whereas Mitsu is not. She was born in Japan. And particularly how their early lives shape the ways that or inform the ways of her, their activism. And then also how they also they contribute to the ruptures at various points in their life, right? Their separation as siblings in their childhood, their separation that exists um, as they are incarcerated and relocated um, during World War II, and then also how they're reconnected um, in their activism in their retirement years. So how does this kind of build new trajectories um, of justice? For yeah. Thank you. I feel like both of your questions keep opening up to more and more conversation and I need to hone in on sort of one point so we stay within time to some degree. So I'll go ahead and do that. But there's so much here and it's such a rich question. Um, so the question of ruptures and of movement and removal, right, and of transnationalism. So I, I start the book talking about the fact that the older brother, Mike, right, was actually born in the US and the younger sister, Mitsu, was born in Japan. And this goes against kind of our conventional ideas about Asian American history, right? People move from one country to the other, they immigrate, right? Younger children are born in the US, older ones in Asia or someplace else. And so I talk about how this disrupts ideas of linear movement, right? And reflects migratory circuits that, that are actually much more complex than we think. And these migratory circuits um, really come to impact the, both of their activism and I think Mike's in particular, his political development. And one of the things that happens, why this happens, right? Why Mike's born in the U.S. in Seattle and why Mitsu's born in Japan is, is itself an interesting story. I think that in part because both of the people I'm working with are such great storytellers. I think this book has a ton of great stories. And um, one of them is that when Mitsu is, when their mother, Mrs. Yasutake, is Oh, is, is about seven months pregnant with Mitsu, she travels to Japan. Part of the reason she travels to Japan is because at the time, Japanese Americans, there was a lot of racism and segregation and they could not be um, seen at the hospitals. And so there were always midwives who delivered the Japanese children but the midwife was busy and Mr. Yasutaka actually ended up delivering one of his children and he was not going to do that again. And so his wife went to Japan to, um, to have her family help her right during this period. And it was a really difficult period. She had Mike Yasutaka, the oldest two years old, two and a half, the, then another child 
and then, you know, about to give birth to a third. It was it was a difficult moment. She goes to Japan, gives birth to Mitsu, and shortly thereafter, the 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 middle, the second son gets gravely ill. And she the mother feels she Mrs. Yasutake feels she has to take care of this child, leaves Mike with grandmother, leaves Mitsu with uh, uh, another woman who could you know, breastfeed her, who could feed her and um, sustain her and then leaves and has to go to the U.S., ends up going to the U.S. All of this is unexpected, right? And her children stay. So Mitsu stays there for about two or three years, but Mike ends up staying there from age two to age seven. And um, it struck me so much when I'm interviewing Mitsu Yamada, I don't know, you know, they're both grandparents, right? And, you know, so this is many, many years later. And throughout her whole life, she used the term, she told me, yes, when Mike joined our family. And I was like, what? He was already part of the family, right? From age zero to two. But for Mitsue, she didn't meet him until he came back to the United States, back to Seattle when he was age seven. And I think that that is exactly how it felt to her and to him as well. I think about as age a two-year-old and you're suddenly left with a stranger, your grandparent, a loving grandparent, but a stranger, how traumatic that would be. But Mike Yasutake talks about more his transition back at age seven. And he felt so out of place as a Nisei because he was a Kibe, right? And he was raised in Japan and he felt out of place in Seattle. And he didn't really know this family he was joining. And it was just very, very, you know, a strange moment. And I think that then that undergirds the his the, the kinds of politics he develops, right? With real care and concern for the migrant, for the poor, for the displaced person, for the immigrant, for, for the marginalized person. Um, anyways, I, I think that, that that's one moment of, of migration and of disruption that really is important to them. And I think another moment which just kind of screams out in this book, right, is, is World War II and the concentration camp experience. And um, they go in, that you know, meets, they're, they're, they're born in 1920 and 1923, so they're young adults. They're in their they're in their early twenties when they go into the concentration camps, but one of the things that really was pivotal for me, I think, or really heart wrenching for me, was what happened to the, their parents. So they leave the camps, they join Mitsue and Mike in Cincinnati, and the only kinds of jobs open to Japanese Americans were. Um, you know, Mr. Yasutake had worked as an interpreter. He was for the INS, in fact. He was one one of the few Japanese Americans who had um, kind of jobs in mainstream U.S. In institutions, and they ended up working as a domestic in in a family in a family's home because they would give them employment, and they had to have employment in order to get out of the concentration camps. And I read the INS archival materials and documents on um, the work that they were doing and, it, and, and, and the evaluations of how they were doing as in their work, right, and in their living conditions, how they were adapting and adjusting to life outside the concentration camps. And, you know, there were things like, oh, he's so slow. The, 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 the people whose home they, they were working in, they would say things like, he's so slow. He seems... Um, he can't understand our instruction. We have to repeat over and over again for him to do this. And I was thinking, he was depressed. 
he did not want to do this. And then I saw a series of letters that Mr. Yasutake wrote that was constantly trying to um, leave Cincinnati and get out of this situation and get a different kind of job. And he ends up, after many, many unsuccessful tries, going to Chicago and becomes the head of the Chicago Resettler um, group that um, d helped Japanese Americans settle you know, or whatever, uh, move back into post-concentration camp life. And Chicago was the city that accepted the most Japanese Americans or where the, the most Japanese Americans went post-camp. So I just want to say that these types of disruptions to family life, to what it meant to be Japanese American, I think had this major impact on both of them and their um, political trajectories. And... Um, Clearly, there's there's much more to say, but I think I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, thanks so much, Diane. I think, yeah, I think transnationality pops up in in a lot of ways, right? In in the book, um, and you know, specifically also how border and military violence sort of shape shapes everyday experiences in very you know, um, devastating ways. Um, and I'm th I'm thinking about sort of you know Mike and Mitsu's support for global justice in places like Iran and Puerto Rico and Hawaii, Okinawa, Guam, you know, all places that have intimate ties to both Japanese and U.S. imperialism. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking about Mike and his position as a reverend and operating within, you know, the con somewhat of the confines, uh, you know, of, of, of a faith-based activism, he also, um, the really interesting idea that um, you sort of centered in, in the text about Jubilee liberation, um, sort of about this idea that's taken from the Bible, uh, the mandate that every 50 years uh, marks a renewed release of all prisoners, a cancellation of debt, and a restoration of land. And so um, this would entail a radical structural transformation and what you call a, uh, a quote, anti-racist and anti-colonial economic leveling of society. Um, and so thinking maybe about um, sort of both the limitations, but also sort of liberation beyond existing institutions, um, how do these uh, Mike and Mitsue's uh, trajectories of activism inform us about the difficulties of working within them, within institutions, and the need to sort of build new anti-capitalist and decolonial forms of relation? Um, maybe maybe a precursor to uh, when we had the word abolition or the language, you know, of, of that. Um yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there are many words that they do not use, right? They do not use the word abolition. They do not, he does not, he did not use the word jubilee liberation. Um, and I, and I write in there, they do not use the word like Reverend Mike did not identify and nor, nor does Mitsu, right? As radical or leftist. And they never use the word Marx, Lenin, Mao, right? The kind of the language of the Asian American activists from the sixties and seventies. Um, and yet I want to read what their, what their practices, right? And I want to expand in some ways the meaning of radicalism. I don't mean to dilute radicalism and make it apply to any old thing that's left of, I don't know what, center. <laughs> but but I also think that we can think more expansively, right, more capaciously about what, what we mean by this. And um, they weren't ideologically driven, but they were driven by the faith that you mentioned, right? This this jubilee liberation, right? The ideas of like bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives was a major theme, right? 
bringing sight to the blind, right? Letting the oppressed go free. And, um, and, and I think that what makes them important is that they were really very genuine about trying to do this work, right? It wasn't just a performative thing to try to look like they're working for justice, but it was rigorous. It was day in and day out. It was risking losing your job and then losing your job, right? It was it was all of this kind of thing. And Reverend Mike's trajectory is really interesting because I think in World War II, he goes from being more of a conscientious objector, right? Objecting to like killing through war, not really objecting, I don't think so much to like U.S. militarism. I mean, it wasn't the moment. And this is where, you know, your question invokes this, right? We need to guard against teleological readings, right? That like put back on a people in a different time, the words, the vocabulary, the ideas, right? Um, the, 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 the concepts of today, in, into the past. But but and so World War Two was a moment before the Vietnam War protests, right? And so he was not critiquing US militarism. Then in the 60s, now an ordained minister, Reverend Mike is doing things like going um, throughout the Midwest. He's the minister, he's a he's a heading a, a youth ministry. So his his job is to travel to different colleges and provide ministry. And he takes it upon himself I didn't realize till I did the research and saw the actual archival documents how much it was his idea. And he would just travel hundreds of miles out of his way to go to a military stockade where there were draft resistors prison or federal penitentiaries. He would call up people and ask if he could stay with them, people who were like peace supporters, people he didn't know. And then he would go to these federal prisons and maybe and maybe not get to see the prisoner he had driven hundred miles out of his way to visit. And, um, um, but this was, he, this is how he defined his job, but still it was not an, it was not, it was, it was supporting the draft resistors much as he wanted to be supported during world war II, Right. And it was an anti-war position, but not in the ways that develop later. And then in the eighties in the seventies, he's working with a woman named Carmen Valentin. They're working at the YMCA college. They're doing things like supporting Iranian students who are being targeted at the time. Um, and when she's arrested unexpectedly in April of 1980, he immediately goes to the prison and supports her and supports um, the 10 other Puerto Rican revolutionaries and anti-imperialists who were arrested at that moment in Evanston because they were mistaken for Iranians. And they were part of a, of a, of a struggle and an armed struggle to support the liberation of Puerto Rico, right, that had been under U.S. colonial powers as they read it and um and and mike was a pacifist but he supported that struggle in huge in really relentlessly so much so that many of them just considered him part of what they did um members of the puerto rican community organized a tribute to him later in his life um and so he really came to to do this kind of work and one of the things he did late in life is he got a um was awarded a bannerman award um to travel to um, island nations six island nations impacted by u.s and Jap japanese imperialism and militarism to hear their stories tochiwa inochi land is life and just wanted to recur 
record the stories of people, the people in the Marshall Islands who were impacted by nuclear testing and ended up giving birth to what was known as the jellyfish babies, right? To people in Okinawa who were impacted by uh, the militarism of the uh, sexual uh, violence by the Japanese military, right? To people in Okinawa who were impacted by the U.S. and Japanese militarism in the Battle of Okinawa, right, which in which a quarter of the Okinawan population perished, um, all these kinds of things. And he really grew into these different kinds of politics. And so I think that one of the benefits of the format of biography is that it allows us to to learn and think along with the kinds of political developments, if you're doing political biography as I do, in people's lives, right? And the ways that they change over time. Um, And yet, even though he was doing this work, I don't know the degree to which he would have called himself an anti-imperialist, right? Like the Sansei activists um, were were doing. So it's it's an interesting, I feel like both... Mitsue Yamada and Mike Yasutake challenge us to um, think expansively and not not think in sectarian ways about what politics mean. And I want to say this about Mitsue Yamada. Um, She worked with, she was close with, right? One of of the uh, films that is made about her is this beautiful documentary called Mitsue and Nelly about Mitsu Yamada and Nellie Wong, a Chinese-American poet, right? And Nellie Wong is a feminist socialist, very explicitly, with the Freedom Socialist Party. And Mitsu never, though those weren't her politics, never strayed away from that, even though she had lived through McCarthyism herself, right? And that, again, is a lesson (laughs) or a moment to pause and think about as we are seeing a kind of growing McCarthyism in this moment today, what is the stance that we're going to take circling back to the ideas of complicity? Thank you so much for those really lovely reminders, Diane. You know, thinking about the particular present moment that we're living in, um, what gives us moments of pause, you know, what we can find in ourselves through reflection, um, to think about learning and thinking along political developments as we read through biographies and as we read through history, and then also about how we can um, be challenged to think expansively um, about our own activism and you know what you said at the beginning of your your last response, which is thinking expansively about the meaning of radicalism. Uh, and so Mike and Mitsu's life I, and the book Nisei Radicals uh, more broadly offers so many of those wonderful interventions that I think are really present for us um, right now. And so to think about, you know, I, I know we're already at the end of our conversation, which seems uh, like it's gone so fast already. So to think about what you would like to leave uh, listeners with and to kind of close our con- conversation, um, would you be willing to share what projects you're working on and or what is inspiring you in in the present? Sure, really, really happy to. So I'm doing a couple of well, I'm doing more than that, but I'll talk about two of the projects that I'm working on, research projects. So one of them looks at this moment, uh, at the activism of the Nisei, and I'm looking at the early Cold War, right, right after, uh, in the early post-war period, in which the the JACL comes to dominate with those politics of assimilationism and, and, and respectability, 
that JACL, not necessarily the current date, but that one, uh, post-war JACL that was doing that kind of work. And it it overshadows any other kind of, of activism that was happening among Japanese Americans. And I think really shapes the racialization, right? Uh, and the discourse around Japanese Americans, which gets used to do things like discipline black radicalism in the 60s. And so I'm doing research looking at that period, the late 40s and the 50s, and looking at Japanese American progressive and radical activism, writing about groups like the, the Nisei progressives, wanting to write about Nisei women's activism, and hoping to really shift the story that's told about Japanese America. Um, and then the other project I'm doing is looking at the Asian American movement, the left wing of the Asian American movement, the anti-imperialist um, politics in that movement in the 60s and 70s. And I'm writing, starting with writing about a group called the Asian American Political Alliance, right, which both of you know coined the term Asian America as this explicitly political term that was both pan-Asian and also third-worldist. It was at once anti-racist and anti-imperialist. Um, so those are two, two projects that I'm super excited to, to be working on. Um, and I think you also asked me about maybe what's inspiring me in this moment. Yeah, I think it would be really lovely to think about not only what's inspiring you, but what we could potentially, what you would like listeners to be inspired by as they read Nisei Radicals. Thank you. That's such a nice question. Um, I, I think I'm so inspired by, despite all the horrors that are happening in this moment and the ways in which it feels so intractable, it feels so hard to make meaningful change, right, transformative change at this moment. And yet, people around the world are fighting back, right? And they have been, we've seen, right, in the last decade, how much, in, in part because conditions have gotten so bad, but nonetheless, we see that people don't just, they, they fight back. And I think that that's some of the story of Mitsuo Yamada and Michael Yasutake, right? And they fight back with the tools they have in the ways they can, Right. So Michael Yasutake, as an Episcopalian minister, fought back in a particular way. Right. And Mitsuo Yamada, as a poet, fought back in a different way. And their 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 work was also really grounded. And one of the things that they both did is they traveled to support political prisoners. Mike Yasutake, people said, supported perhaps more political prisoners than anybody else. And that may be possible because the federal government makes it difficult to visit political prisoners. And because he was doing it as a minister through his Interfaith Prisoners of Conscience project, he was able to visit people all over, all over the country. And it was supporting them, working for their defense, but also giving them whatever support they needed. Somebody just needed glasses and Mike Yasutake was able to get them that. It's a small thing, right? But it makes a difference. And Yuri Kochiyama also did this kind of work of support. And that's the one thing, especially when times feel so intractable, we need to fight back against power. We need to do this in collective and organized ways. But we also need to attend to each other, right? To build love, to build community, to be kind to one another, to be generous, to not just judge and cancel people quickly, right? But to think about the totality of who people are. And I think Reverend Mike and Mitsue Yamada really help us to think in those complex ways because they don't fit any easy categorization, right? And, and they are not necessarily the 
I mean, the, Reverend Mike Yasutake is not even known hardly, right, for all the work that he's done. Um, and and so it makes us, I think, think complexly about people and about the work we can do and about the ways we can change and about the ways that we need to fight back about against power, but also really support each other along the way. Wow, what a wonderful way to the end of this conversation. And you know, Diane, thank you so much for not only the work that you do in recording the lives and activism of so many Asian American um, activists and community members, but then also um, for your own work as you are deeply invested uh, with many of these political struggles that you are writing about. So thank you so much for joining us in conversation today. It's been a really lovely uh, hour in this discussion. Yeah. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Michael. Just such a joy to be in conversation with the two of you.